0: Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. and Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Uh, Today I am introducing a new series of messages called Loving Your Neighbor in a Time of Conflict. And the hope with this is that we will have a bit of a scriptural lens to look through, to view some of the issues going on around us in the city. The big idea here in this new series is that there is a lot happening around us that demands wisdom and engagement in general, but in particular that it demands a biblical wisdom and biblical engagement if we are to bear witness to the truth of Jesus. So today I want to look at something um, that some of you will know about called cancel culture, right? How do we love our neighbors in a time of conflict? Let's talk about cancel culture. Uh, Three points that are gonna frame the conversation for us today. One, we're gonna look at cancel culture. Two, we're gonna look at Zacchaeus out of Luke 19, which you just heard read. And then three, we're gonna look at the mercy of God. So cancel culture, Zacchaeus, and the mercy of God. So what is cancel culture? Well, cancel culture is basically what you see at work when somebody has said or done something that is deemed problematic and offensive, and they get called out for it in a public way where the damage they have done is brought into the light, which is generally then followed by mass outrage at what they've done and the accompanying demands that they lose their position of influence and authority. Sometimes what they've done is horrific and criminal. Sometimes what they have done is wrong and unkind, but sometimes it's just that there is a, louder, a, a larger, louder group of people who disagree with them. Um, I found this to be a good summary statement of what we're talking about today. It was written by a woman named Asia Romano. She said, within the turbulent past several years, the idea that a person can be canceled, in other words, culturally blocked from having a prominent public platform or career, has become a polarizing topic of debate. The rise of cancel culture and the idea of canceling someone coincides with a familiar pattern. A celebrity or other public figure does or says something offensive a public backlash often fueled by social media ensues. Then come the calls to cancel the person, that is to effectively end their career or revoke their cultural cachet whether through boycotts of their work or disciplinary action from an employer. This has happened to celebrities, uh, film producers, musicians and authors and comedians, politicians, CEOs, but it's not limited to celebrities. This has happened to professors and public intellectuals. It's happened to entrepreneurs and small business owners. But what I want to ask here is this. The question I want us to wrestle with. Is cancel culture congruent with the gospel of Jesus? How should we think about this? What should we do with this? Should a Christian try and cancel someone? See, on one hand, we absolutely need to give victims a place to voice their pain to acknowledge their pain, even to validate their pain. But on the other hand, should there not be a way for things to be made right? Is seeking to end someone's career and block them from future opportunities really the way forward, right? This is the tension we are wrestling with. It's a tension we live in. In some cases, you've got people telling their stories of being abused where they've been sinned against where they've been violated, where they've been harmed and they're sharing from a place of pain and they want justice, right? Who doesn't wanna come alongside the broken and the hurting with a desire for justice? I actually think it's our call as the church to be people who come alongside those who've been abused and work for justice in other cases uh, there are ideological differences for example you've got university campuses where this has happened and it leads to activism on the campus which leads to a calling out of a professor for holding what may be perceived as an unsavory view of the world or teaching something that is not in agreement with the vast amount of students and faculty in that environment and then there's a concerted effort made to have that professor removed from their role they get cancelled And this has taken shape in the academic settings, for sure, in campuses across North America, for sure, and around the world. But as it's done so, it's crossed into the mainstream consciousness, and it's now breaking into many other areas of society. So justice, in this sense of cancel culture, cancel culture justice, results in somebody being utterly rejected and silenced with no way of atoning for the wrongs that they have done and no opportunity for forgiveness, and I just want to ask, is that what we are about as followers of Jesus? Or are we the people of the second chance? So here's the overarching problem with cancel culture the aim is not restorative healing in a broken situation, the aim is punitive removal of the person being accused of wrong. Now, let me be exceedingly clear on this because it's sensitive and it needs some nuance. If what has been done is in the category of horrific and criminal, then we press forward with justice, full stop. If what has been done is in the category of wrong and unkind, I think we can confront that person in love, trying to show them the error in their ways. But if it's just something that a larger, louder group of people disagree with, I think we need to be very careful. At its core, in its day-to-day function. At this point in our history, uh, cancel culture is not about restoration and repentance. Cancel culture is about retribution and vengeance. That means the popular usage of the tool of canceling someone is more in line with what the Bible calls malice than it is with the biblical idea of justice. Here's the difference. Justice works with a desire to see wrongs made right, Malice works with a desire to make someone suffer. There's a good example of this in the story of Rachel Denhollander and Larry Nasser and the United States Olympic gymnastic team. For years, the team physician, Dr. Larry Nasser, was sexually abusing the young women in the program. And Rachel Denhollander and a number of other athletes came to the forefront with this with a cry for justice. That wasn't cancel culture, that was seeking justice and i just want you to notice that i'm trying to draw a sharp distinction between biblical justice and popularized cancel culture okay justice is inherently relational and wants to see reconciliation whereas malice does not want to see someone realize their sin and come to a place of healing as much as it wants to see someone caught in their sin and feel the pain of it robert Deffenbaugh said malice is resentment that has turned even more sour so that we now bear ill will toward another to the degree that we wish to see them suffer. It is the attitude which, when it conceives, actively seeks to bring harm to another. See, it comes down to intent. Biblical justice wants to see wrongs made right. uh, Malicious cancel culture wants to see someone pay. David French, who's uh, an American lawyer and journalist, he wrote uh, an obituary, a a eulogy uh, for his professor friend who committed suicide after being canceled. He said, Christ, while in torment on the cross, said of the very soldiers who were killing him and gambling for his garments, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now we look at a few of a man's tweets and declare, cancel him, for he does not deserve to work. See, cancel culture goes beyond the desire for justice and wrongs to be made right and turns into an amplification and a celebration of malice. So how are we supposed to think about this? Let me take you to Luke uh, Luke chapter 19 and, and just show you a little bit of what I mean. Look at the story of Zacchaeus. Look at Luke 19 verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, Zacchaeus is not like the person from the Canada Revenue Agency who sends you a letter and tells you how much you owe them. It's the first thing that we need to see in this passage. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, that is a loaded phrase for people living in Jericho in the time of Jesus you got to think of it like this. If something happened in the world and there was a superpower nation that took over and started conquering land, and imagine the city of Vancouver and the province of British Columbia becomes a conquered territory by this uh, superpower nation. Right? We're still Canadians. We've been Canadians. We still are Canadians, but now we've been occupied by a foreign occupying power. This empire has come in and set up their rule and regime. Now we still pay property taxes to the city and we might pay some income tax to the province or something like that but this new empire says there's actually going to be another taxation on top of it this other taxation is going to be enforced through threat of destruction and violence and the superpower nation is looking for people who will actually start working for them and collecting those taxes and here's how they do it they say if you want to you can be our contractor and it might be a lucrative business opportunity for you. So you as a local person can bid for the contract to be the superpower nation local taxation department. That's how Zacchaeus got his job. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So imagine this, right? The, the, the city that we live in is, is taken over by force and they're looking to hire somebody to be the new tax collector of the new subjects in this violent empire and your neighbor comes out and goes, yeah, I'll do that. Sounds like a good business opportunity. They bid for the job by saying, look, I will collect $1,000 per person per year and I'll deliver that unto you, O new empire. Superpower Nation says, that sounds fantastic. Thankful to have you on the ground doing our bidding. Now here's where your neighbor gets rich. In order to recoup the cost of their investment of putting in the bid for the contract and getting a hold of it, the tax collector actually doesn't make each person pay $1,000 per year. They make everybody pay $1,500 per year, and they pocket the balance because they know that they have the backing of the superpower nation's army, and you have to pay. It's actually institutionalized extortion. And you don't have a choice, so you pay your neighbor who had the audacity to side with the oppressors to rob their own people. And that's what Zacchaeus was doing, and that's why he wasn't super popular. He was a tool of the Roman oppressors, and he was using that opportunity to make himself rich. So just look back at the text, verse 1 again. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and was rich, and apparently he was also short. Now that's not a moral judgment, that's just a measurement of his height. But you've been to a concert or you've been to a parade where somebody who's shorter wants to see. What what does a crowd do when somebody shorter wants to be able to see the action of what's going on? The crowd parts and you let the shorter person stand in front of you and you look over them. But not this crowd. Verse 3 said he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not. It's not just that he was short and couldn't see Jesus, even though he wanted to see Jesus. It's that he couldn't see over the crowd. That's not his problem. They wouldn't let him see Jesus. They blocked his way. Because of who he was, they refused to let him see. They determined that Zacchaeus was not worthy of seeing Jesus as he passed them by. So Zacchaeus does something that I think would have probably been humiliating. He runs on ahead to the road, he climbs a tree so that he can get a look at where Jesus is going to pass by. But you've got to imagine the crowd, right? Most of you are either high school students or have been in high school at some point. Just a group of cool kids, the the in crowd, laughing at the person that they've ostracized for being a person who doesn't matter. And they laugh and they point and they go, look at Zacchaeus, he climbed up in the tree because we wouldn't let him come and hang out with us. They all know that they're in and that he is out because he sided with the oppressors and they are the oppressed. Verse five says, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now, now if you're in the crowd, here's what I think. And maybe I have a weird sense of humor or a weird way of seeing the Bible, but this is what I see. You're probably laughing and you're kind of giddy. You think Jesus is going to go and talk to Zacchaeus and rebuke him for his role in the oppression of his people? You think Jesus, the holy, righteous man of God, is going to go and give Zacchaeus what he has coming, right? The crowd stands back and says, Oh, Jesus is going to side with us. We're going to cancel Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus, hearing the invitation of Jesus for Jesus to come to his place, responds with joy. Not the crowd. Verse 7 says, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. This is a common theme in Luke's gospel. Jesus was always hanging around with the wrong people. In Luke chapter 5, we see this. We see it, uh, Jesus welcomed a tax collector to come and follow him, and the religious leaders, they could not believe it. It says in verse 30, The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We see the same kind of thing happening in Luke chapter 15. Verse 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Jesus does not give up on the same people that we might give up on. So what happens after Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus's house? Verse eight, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Now Zacchaeus is a socio-religious outcast. He is a pariah in his own town. He is seen as an oppressor of his own people, and he has extorted them and robbed them through aligning himself with the Roman oppressors. And the crowd wants to cancel him. They don't see a way for him to atone for his sin. They don't see any hope for him for redemption. And Jesus says, what's for lunch? See, the crowd was right. Zacchaeus was a sinner, and Zacchaeus knows this. He admits this when he says that he's defrauded people. See, when the mob looks at Zacchaeus, they see a lost cause. When Jesus looks at Zacchaeus, he sees a lost sheep he's come to bring home. Zacchaeus resolved on the spot when Jesus invited himself into his life. On the spot, he resolved to act differently in the face of Jesus' acceptance of him. He wasn't defending himself against the crowd's charges and claiming to be some kind of righteous man. But as a result of encountering Jesus, he was a changed man. So Jesus could speak of salvation coming that day and of the lost being saved. Now, it might seem counterintuitive to us as it did to the crowd that day. But Jesus came to save both the oppressor and the oppressed. So Christ City, do we believe in the transforming power of an encounter with Jesus? Do we see a lost cause or do we see a lost sheep? So we've looked at cancel culture and a bit about the story of Zacchaeus. But what about the mercy of God? See, God is merciful. It's one of his defining attributes, and we see it all over the scriptures in the way that he relates to his people. God's mercy at work in us means we do not get what we deserve, which would be condemnation, but that we get what we don't deserve, which is grace and salvation by grace alone. So, Paul the apostle knew this well. He wrote in 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, God is merciful. But he's merciful with a purpose that the world might know his saving love. See, the mercy of God at work in us means that counterculture is at odds, or, or pardon me, cancel culture is at odds with the gospel itself. See, the way of cancel culture is retribution, but the way of kingdom culture is redemption. Cancel culture looks at a person in their worst moment and attacks them with malice. Kingdom culture overcomes the worst moment in a person's life, with the mercy of God. When Paul says this in 1 Timothy, we know that he's the one who oversaw the stoning of the first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 7. But here he is proclaiming the mercy of God. See, cancel culture says you can't change or grow and that you are the sum total of the worst actions in your life. Kingdom culture says that you can be redeemed with an encounter with Jesus, and find your new identity in Christ. See, we need to move from the malice of cancel culture to the mercy of kingdom culture because Jesus' church is not full of flawless people. It's full of forgiven people. It's not perfect people. It's pardoned people. That's why we don't join the crowd labeling somebody a lost cause. Instead, we participate with Jesus in extending mercy to the lost sheep because he came to seek and save the lost. Let me ask you something. When you you look at this text in Luke 19, you see the story of Zacchaeus, you see the crowd. Who do you connect with? Who do you identify with in the story? In lots of ways, we know that we are all Zacchaeus. We're all afraid of being canceled by the community around us for all the horrific things that we've done. We all know that we're sinners in need of redemption. And so, in lots of ways, we can see ourselves cast in the role of Zacchaeus. But in other ways, we are the crowd. We place ourselves in the seat of the judge. And we issue verdicts on those we deem unworthy of mercy. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. But judging, by judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. You know, I was having a conversation with my friend Sarah, who served in the mission field for a time, and there was a point where she was serving in Phuket, Thailand, which is home to sex tourism. And people travel from all over the world to buy sex. And she was working with a team there, a team of women, and on one evening they would stay home and intercede and send out half of the team to go and uh, witness to the truth of the gospel and the love of God with the young women and the lady boys that had been brought into sex trafficked into or, or chose to go into prostitution. And so she had built a relationship with a young woman and she had gone out that night while her team was at home praying for her and gone out that night to go and share the gospel with her to show that there's another avenue through which she might find a way to live than doing what she was doing. And that young woman had already booked an appointment that evening and had gone out a bit earlier. And so Sarah found herself sitting at a bar and when she told me this story, it, it gripped me. She found herself sitting at the bar next to a white European man who came there on an annual basis to buy sex. And the realization that she had in the moment was that she was called to love him too. Not to sit in the seat of judgment that yes, what he was doing is abhorrent and sinful and damaging and dehumanizing. And she was there to evangelize and bring hope to people who were in a bit of def- desperate situation. But she had the realization that she was called to love him as well. Speaking prophetic truth to power and calling out sin doesn't mean that we have to withhold the opportunity for a person to change and enter into the mercy of God. We seek to see lost people restored, not rejected. And we do that by inviting them to Jesus, not by Isolating them from Jesus, like the crowd in Luke 19. Loving our neighbors in a time of conflict means that we open ourselves up both to the sinner like Zacchaeus and to the cancel culture mob that wants to see him done away with. Titus chapter three, verse one says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... This is the gospel of Jesus at work in us, that we are mindful of who we once were and that we know who we now are in him. See, I want you to think about Luke chapter 19 and notice that while Zacchaeus desired to see who Jesus was, that it was Jesus who invited himself into Zacchaeus's life. See, if we allow cancel culture to be the operating system of how we engage with the lost and the broken city around us, We may find ourselves in the position of the crowd who are blocking the way to Jesus. We must work for justice and reconciliation and redemption with love. Yes and amen. But we must not aim for justice with our hearts full of malice and the desire for retribution or we miss the mark. If we are followers of Jesus, we need to be reminded how much we have been forgiven because apart from the mercy of God in my life, you would have canceled me too. If you're going to celebrate communion with your house church right now, uh, just invite you to prepare the elements. As we celebrate communion, we do so in community, we do so with repentance, we do so with the full knowledge of the saving work of Jesus, who gave himself in our place and for our sins. When we celebrate communion, we're taking the bread and the wine as a picture, symbols of the body and blood of Jesus. Jesus' body was broken for us. He died in our place and for our sins. and His blood was shed that we might find atonement that we so desperately need. If you're a follower of Jesus, go ahead and celebrate communion together with great joy. If you're not a follower of Jesus, hold off on communion. But my goodness, why don't you reach out to us and let us know who you are and how we might get connected with you. We would love to connect you to the life and community of Christ City. We're gathering in person, but we're also gathering in house churches and community groups in all kinds of different ways. We would love to get to know you and to be able to point you to Jesus in a more full way. You can always email us, info at ChristCityChurch.ca, or you can email me, Brett, at ChristCityChurch.ca. It'd be my joy to have a conversation with you about the good news of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your mercy, in that you did not give me what I deserved. Nor have you given any of us who are in Christ what we deserved. You've given us much better. You have lavished us with grace through the finished work of your son Jesus on the cross. Through his finished work, we know that we can come before you boldly and we can declare that we find ourselves grafted into him, united to him, and trusting him with all our faith and all our hope (laughs) anchored in him. We know that we can do this and we know that when we do, you receive us. You welcome us. Pour out your spirit upon us that we too might be vessels of mercy in the city in which we find ourselves. Help us to be good news people in Vancouver. Help us to think well, to be full of love, to extend your mercy to those that our culture thinks don't deserve it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.